turn to the book of Genesis, you say, to the book of Genesis, I thought we were going through the book of Revelation. We are going through the book of Revelation, but um, last week, if you remember, we began looking at an introduction to prophecy, and uh, as we go into the prophetic portion of the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus gave John an outline of the book, I believe, and he told John that he was to write about things which have been, and that was the message he gave to John, the things which are, and those are the messages to the churches that we, we spent seven weeks going through, and then the things that would be, and that is the message of the future. And so last week we began looking at the message of the future as far as a, an introduction to prophecy, and I said last week that we would be looking last week at the nature of prophecy, and as we looked at the nature of prophecy last week, we looked at three parts. We looked at the divine nature of prophecy, and that is that all prophecy is not of human origin, but rather it is of the origin of God, that God is the one who gives it. We saw the progressive nature of prophecy, and that is that, that God has progressively revealed more and more about what he is about to do in the end times throughout the scriptures. And then finally, we looked at the systematic nature of prophecy, and that is that there is, God is not a God of chaos, but rather he's a God of order, and so therefore God has a purpose, God has a timetable as well, regarding how the prophecy is going to come about. And then today we want to begin looking at the second major segment of that introduction to prophecy, and that is the conveyance of prophecy. And that is, what does the Bible actually talk about now coming through? And so today we want to look at the prophecies, the conveyance of the prophecies via the covenants and feasts. Um, next week, Lord willing, we'll be looking at um, Daniel, and then the other prophets the week after that, then Jesus, and then finally we'll look at it via Paul. So today we want to look at the introduction of prophecy through the conveyance of the prophecies, if you would, through the covenants and the feasts. And so, um, we are going to begin by looking at, the, the, via the covenants, and just a kind of a warning, as we go through, there is so much information as we go through this, and I'm trying to condense it so we don't lose track of the book of Revelation. We could spend a year or years on just prophecy. Does that make sense? And then we'd lose track of why we're, what we're doing this for. And so I'm trying to condense a lot of this information into just five weeks. And so a lot of today is going to be reading scripture. And then it, when we're done with the covenants, we'll, you know, we'll kind of make a, a comment as we go here and there. And then we'll come through the feast and we'll make comments just a little bit here and there. But most of today is going to be just reading the word, which is a beautiful thing anyway. It's what it should be most of the time. It's just focusing on God's word. And so we want to look at um, what God says prophetically for, via the covenants. The first covenant we want to look at is the Noahic covenant. Okay? And that is in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, and last week during the discussion time, and I wish I would have taped some of that for those who listen to this via the web and so on and so forth, and um, we passed them on, um, because it was good discussion there. And um, let me state for the record as well, because someone asked me a question last Sunday night about what I was stating about the seven days and asking whether I meant that God was took 7,000 years to create and if you came away with that, the answer is no. I mean, you know I'm a dyed in a wool that God took seven literal 24-hour days to create the heavens and the earth. In fact, he took six days to do it, and the seventh day he rested. And so, but what I was saying is that I believe that each of those literal 24-hour days are figurative. And that is where he says a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And so that they are used prophetically in a figurative sense as well. So, but here we are in Genesis chapter 9. And this is in regards to, to Noah. And last week, part of the um, discussion time as well, 
there was a question asked me about conditional prophecies, if you remember that. And, um, and my response to that was, if you're talking about the concept then, is really what we're talking about is more of the promises of God. That the promises of God are really prophecies, if you think about it. When God promises to do something, they're really prophecies. When God prophesies something, he what? He promises that it's going to be. But yet, there are times when, like for Jonah going to the city of Nineveh, the opportunity is for them to what? Repent, and then they won't have to have the destruction that's going to be forecasted in 40 days for them. Well, in a sense, what we're going to look at here right now is a promise. It's not really prophecy, but it is prophecy because it is a promise. And so, in Genesis chapter 9, beginning at verse 8, we read, Then God said to Noah, spoke to Noah, and said unto his sons with him, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you. This is a unilateral covenant. And you'll notice that God, when he makes covenants, they're not bilateral, they're unilateral. And God says, I'm establishing my covenant with you, and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus, I establish my covenant with you. Here it is. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all the flesh. The waters shall never again come never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is in the world, is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. Now, God didn't say, in a positive manner, that here's what's going to happen in the end times, but there is a piece of information that does help us concerning the end times here that we need to understand. And that is what? It won't be by flood. Okay? It's a data. A factoid is a data point. You just kind of put it in there, okay? That God has made an everlasting covenant. How long is that? Everlasting, right? It's a long time. Okay? So God says, I'm never going to flood the entire earth again. So there's one thing you know about as we go into the end times. It's not going to happen by a flood, right? Okay? So, the next covenant we want to look at is the Abrahamic covenant, which is in Genesis 15. So turn a couple pages over to Genesis 15. And then we'll look at the uh, reiteration of that with Jacob in Genesis 28. But in Genesis 15, look at verse 18. This is the covenant that God made with um, Abraham. It says, On the same day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kemenites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. In other words, they're all going to be what? They're going to be gone. Because God is taking their land, and he's going to give it to the descendants of, of Ram. And turn to 28, chapter 28, where we see this covenant reiterated with um, Yaakov, or Jacob, in chapter 28, verse 13 and 16. And where we read, And behold, Yahweh stood above it 
and said this is above the, um, the memories having the dream of the, the, the ladder, okay? And he says, stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you in your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And so what do we know? End times wise, what, how does this covenant help us as we begin our, our look and building our foundation, if you would, about end time prophecy? What do we know? What has God promised? Okay, Steve? No matter where, where you're at, he's going to bring you back. No matter where you're at, he's going to bring you back? No, not necessarily. Think specifically here, literally. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jews. He's talking to Abraham and then Jacob. Jacob became Israel. Okay, he's changed his name to Israel because he struggled with God. And so God promised to give the land to the descendants of Abraham or to the Jews, the Israelites. Actually, I like to use the word Israelites because Jews refers predominantly to those who were of the tribe of Judah. And they became synonymous with Jews. So God promised that Israel that would have that land. Now, there's a great battle going on over in, 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 in Palestine, right? about who owns the land. And so, but the reality is that God promised all the way back with Abraham, even when other people lived there, and that's why he talks about the Perizzites, the Kenites, the Gergeshites, and so on and so forth, that God was going to give Abraham and his descendants that land. That is the land of promise, and that is the land that will be Israel's. Now, how does it help me? Well, the reality is, as I look over there right now, and this is a political message, not really, but it is a political statement, and that is, and I had the opportunity to write on this when I was in my, my officer advanced course, and we had to write on some uh, current political situation. So I asked if I could write on the, uh, the, the Middle East situation, and so I wrote a theology paper anyways, and so I figured I'd get the witness to my attack officer some way. And, but the reality is, will there ever, according to this passage, will there ever be peace right now in the Middle East, according to the standard of man? No. Why? Because God promised the land to Israel, and the people there say what? It's theirs. That's exactly right. They're, I mean, the fact is, and if we go further into this, we have with um, Jacob and Esau being born, God chose Jacob and not Esau, and then also with Abraham, that they had another son, Ishmael, before they had Isaac, and the Muslims, they look to Ishmael, right? And then there are others who look to Esau. And so there are factions over there. And the Muslims actually say that, that God's special promise, God's covenant, actually didn't come through Isaac, but it came through Ishmael. And so they say that they're the people of promise. And so there's never going to be peace. And so watch out if you're here in the day when somebody's able to broker peace. We'll talk about this in weeks to come. Someone's able to broker peace in the Middle East. Okay? Because... There's only one person in the future who's going to do that. And he is the Antichrist. That's exactly right. And it's going to be a false brokerage of peace. Okay? But we'll see that as we go into the book of Daniel. I think that's next week. Didn't I say that? Daniel, we'll look at that a little bit next week as we look at the book of Daniel. So, but what do we see here? Basically, in a nutshell, the land belongs to Israel. I have to put that as a factoid. There are a lot of 
um, as we go through this, you're going to see some of these other verses. There are denominations today, Christian churches, who believe that we are Israel. That the church is, that God has done away with Israel and the church is now Israel. According to God's promise, his everlasting covenant, is that true? No. And we're going to see it even more defined as we go through this morning through these other covenants. How anybody could hold to this truth, or to the, I have no clue. Second Samuel, chapter 7. We want to look at the Davidic covenant, and then we're going to look at Psalm 89. Second Samuel, chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verse 8 and following. God is speaking through Nathan the prophet, Nathan the seer. And he says to him, he says, now, um, beginning of verse, verse 8, he says, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who were on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more, as previously. Since the time I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord Yahweh tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my chesed, my mercy, shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay? Before we comment, let's go to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. In Psalm 89, we're going to begin in verse 20. And just so you know, this psalm was not written by uh, David. This was written by an Ezraite. It was uh, Ethan. Ethan the Ezraite. And beginning in verse 20, he says, I found my servant David. With my holy oil I have anointed him. With, my hand shall, with whom my hand shall be established, also my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will, beat him down. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name his horn shall be exalted. Also I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, my mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not judge, do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity of stripes. Nevertheless, 
my loving kindness. I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the words that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn in my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Now, between 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89, what do I know that helps me as I go toward end-time prophecies? What do I, what's another foundation point here? What's, what's being promised? God doesn't change his word, but specifically, what is he not changing his word about? The seed of David, David's throne. That there will be a seed from his own body, we're told. Now, this, I mean, that's just not abstractly thrown in there, but we're told that it will be literally from the seed of David. That there is a lineage that is going on, and that the ruler of, the, of Israel... Because Israel is going to be back, right? And there will be a, a ruler one day who will sit upon a throne who will be of the lineage of David. Now, class, if you would, right? Who is that? Jesus. Jesus. Oh, we all know that because Jesus was already there, right? And Jesus, we've already talked about it. And it is painfully brought out in both Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, I believe, the lineage of Jesus Christ to show that he literally is of the line of David. Do you know what, interestingly, what happened when the temple was destroyed? They lost all the records of lineage. It is literally impossible for anybody right now to prove that they are the lineage of David. And that's something. When the Jews right now are putting together um, all the things that they need for the temple, we'll get to that one day in all this prophecy stuff. It's fun stuff that's going on right now. Over in Israel, they're already making all the utensils. I think they're already made for the temple. Okay, They have a herd of red heifers over there because they need a, a perfect red heifer to, to, to sacrifice and, and to take the ashes and mix with water so they can purify the temple mount and they can purify all the utensils. They have set aside Cohen, priests, for years now, who have grown up unstained and untouched by the world. They have sequestered them. Is that the right word? Um, they've set them aside for years from the time that... They, what's, what's, sequestered. What? sequestered and cloistered. Sequestered. Cloistered and sequestered. I put them together. So they really did it. They sequestered them. Anyway, so they sequestered them and cloistered them. They put them... Anyways, and they put them aside so that when the time comes that they have this temple, they already have their unstained priests. Now, if you ever meet somebody who has the last name Cohen, C-O-H-E-N in English, that means priest. That's, an in, that's, that's the Hebrew word for priest. So somebody who's called Levi, someone who's, uh, who has names like that, theoretically, this, their last name, they probably are of the tribe of Levi. There are some terms out there that they understand that have been passed on through so that they know who they are and where they're from. Okay? But, to prove that you are of the house and lineage of David, it's gone. For a Jew, that's a devastating thing. 
Because it's going to be hard for a Messiah to ever prove who he is. Sure, they make a leap of faith to prove that they're... But that's why the name is so important. Okay, coming through. And it's right. So there, there, there's an assumption that happens based upon that because there are no other records. And so, yes, exactly right. So, this is exciting because God says, God says in his word, Yahweh says, and he declares this as a promise, and he stakes it on his own name. He says, listen, I have sworn it. Chris. He married a... She married a Israeli citizen. An Israeli citizen, okay. And we had it up in the house one night, and I said, well, you know, the Messiah comes through the line of David. How do you account of that with that being restored? And he says, well, we don't look at the sort of Messiah you're talking about. That's exactly right. People with messianic properties for Israel. That's exactly right. That's exactly the, uh, what the Bible is fighting to ask about. They said, well, that's not, that's not how we see it. Right. They've watered it down. Because, because of the fact they cannot. So, for example, even right now they're supposed to have sacrifices, right? And so, like a Day of Atonement. How can you have a sacrifice on a Day of Atonement? So, do you know what they do? They take a chicken and they, for the ones who are conservative and reformed, they take a chicken and they, they, they ring it over their head. That's their sacrifice. Because they can't have sacrifices at the temple. And so, they, they have figurative, made things figurative and allegorical, and they've just kind of watered them down so that they... It doesn't matter. So Isaiah 53, we understand it to be a clear passage of Messiah, but do you know who they say the suffering servant is? The Jews, the Jews themselves. They say they, they, they themselves are that suffering servant. So, they, so even that concept of the Messiah, they, they kind of water down, and, and so it's not going to be this individual. But we know, literally, since, remember that's one of the first things I said was, I believe in a literal interpretation of Scripture. That if God said it, I believe it. He hasn't kind of Crypto, uh, made it a cryptogram that I've got to try to figure it all out. And so he told David, by his own holiness, by his own name, by the covenants that he made with the sun and the moon, that David would have someone to reign over the house of Israel. So, even though the Jews themselves don't believe it, we as believers of, of Yahweh, of God, and of his Messiah, Jesus the Christ, we ought to believe what his word says. And so, the Davidic Covenant. Factoid, little thing. We are looking forward to Christ again reigning on the throne of David. The New Covenant, which we read this morning in our Bible reading. Let's look at it again in Jeremiah 31. And then we're going to turn to Romans 11 just to see it played out as well. Jeremiah 31. And as Steve said as we were going to there for the Bible reading this morning, this is one of my favorite passages. I mean, this is if, if I love when I go to Awana conferences in different places I get to speak and I and I ask them if they're part of the new covenant and it's or, or in fact what I say is how many how many of you are part of the new covenant? And it's it's amazing how, how few hands I have go up. And I go, that's a shame you all need to be saved. You know? <laughs> and, and 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 because if you're here today, and if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a part of the New Covenant. That's why Jesus Christ came, to establish the New Covenant. And so let's read it. Jeremiah 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, 
saith Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which I broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sins. I will remember no more. Thus saith Yahweh, who gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea, and its waves roar. Yahweh Shabbat, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation from before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. So here you go. It's the perfect plan to alter the plan of God. Right? Guess God put it down, didn't he? He gave you, this is one of these conditionals, right? God gave you an out. You want to destroy Israel? What are you going to do? Either, either search out and fully comprehend everything that there is down to the core of the earth and to the heavens out there through the black holes and beyond. Or, what may be a little bit easier for you, you can destroy the sun, the moon, and all the stars. So if you destroy the sun, the moon, and the stars, God will eliminate the covenant that he made with Israel. Good deal, huh? The problem is, the minute you destroy the sun, what happens? The earth goes, <laughs> and wiping out of orbit. What's the point that God's making? It cannot, will not, ever be done. Go to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Beginning at verse 25, down to the end of the chapter. Paul says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant, unknowing of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Yaakov, from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are what? Without repentance or irrevocable. They're irrevocable. They are not able to be revoked or changed or altered or called back. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also now have been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. All the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments in his ways past finding out. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him, through him, to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. So what do we know from this this relationship that God has with Israel? Again, as we stated with Abraham, one day, all Israel will be delivered. Israel will be brought back to the land. We'll talk about that probably in, in a few minutes here as we get into the feasts. But what we know, coming through this, coming through these covenants, is Israel is God's chosen people. There's no getting around it. He will bring them back to the land. The seed of David will reign upon the throne. And when the time comes to destroy the earth, it will not be by a flood. Does that make sense? Okay? So let's move on to the feasts. Okay? So go back to the book of Leviticus 23. The other passages that we're going to look at, I will put up on the screen. But we're going to go through the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. Because it has the feasts of Israel listed here. And I believe that these feasts, as I believe creation is as well, they are literal, but they have as well a prophetic fulfillment. In Leviticus 23, and I think we'll, we'll see this as we go through it. Leviticus 23... We want to begin at verse 5 to 8, where we read about two feasts, which really are blended into one eight-day feast, and that is unleavened, uh, Passover and unleavened bread. And we read in the beginning of verse 5, it says, On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is Yahweh's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to Yahweh for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So, what do we know? We know from this one, and we're going to look at Exodus 12 in just a moment here, that at the 14th day at twilight, that is Yahweh's Passover. And on the 15th day of the seventh month, it's the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay? We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But let's look at Exodus chapter 12. Okay? And in Exodus chapter 12, this is when, when Israel is coming out of um, Egypt, and they're getting ready to have the first Passover. But here, even in the first Passover, God establishes that this is not going to be just a one-time event, but this event is important forever. And so here we read in Exodus 12, this month, beginning verse 2, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for each household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So we're giving a little bit more information right now. Now it's not just on the fourteenth day that you're slaughtering this animal at twilight, but rather we're told that really the process of Passover begins when? On the tenth day of Nisan, which is what this is, the tenth day of Nisan, okay? And said so on the tenth day of Nisan, you are supposed to select the lamb, and at the fourteenth day, at twilight, you slaughter the lamb. 
And then, the 15th day, then they shall eat the flesh on that night. That's the 15th day. We'll talk about that. Roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to Yahweh throughout all your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I have brought your armies, I have brought out your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a everlasting ordinance. Okay? So this ordinance of Passover is one that's never to go away. Okay? And in this feast of Passover slash unleavened bread, because we have um, we have a picture of Christ here. It's a fulfillment of Christ. We'll talk about this in just a moment. But you have, on the tenth day of Nisan, okay, a selection of a lamb. Now, from the tenth day to the fourteenth day, they were to examine this lamb to make sure that it actually was perfect, that it was without blemish. So when they offered it on the fourteenth day, they were actually offering a perfect lamb. I believe it was also a matter of getting the attachment as well, that they understood this lamb, and they were looking at this lamb, understanding that this lamb was going to die for their sins. And on the 14th day at twilight, now that's important because the Jewish calendar, the Jewish day, actually runs from sunset to sunset. So twilight was actually the end of the day on the 14th day. It would have started the evening prior, and twilight is from 3 to 6 in the afternoon. Okay? And at 6 o'clock in the afternoon, if you would, come becomes the evening, and that becomes the next day. Because God said, when he created the earth, there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And so their calendar, their daily calendar, runs according to creation. Evening and then the daytime. And so, when we read this then, you need to understand that according to our day, okay, they have two days happening in the same time frame. And so, we would slaughter the lamb, and that evening, we would eat it. But to the Jews, that's two different days. They would actually be slaughtering it on the 14th day of Nisan, and they would be eating it at the beginning of the 15th day of Nisan. Tracking with me here? Okay. And that 15th day of Nisan, as we read, was a holy convocation unto the Lord. That means it was a day that was set apart. It was a Sabbath unto the Lord. And so it was a special Sabbath. So you know that on the seventh day of the week, Saturdays, that's the Jewish Sabbath. And so on that day, they don't do any work. But they would have, as we're going to see through here, other special holy days, high Sabbaths, if you would, okay, in which they weren't necessarily Saturdays, but they, they were days set apart to God. They were holy days where they were to do no work. So I would like for you to picture the scenario here. And this is another one of these Bob things, okay, but I believe it's biblical. I think Jesus died on a Thursday. I don't believe he died on a Friday, okay? And here's why. Because I believe it's prophetically described in, in these passages. We're told in, in the book of John, in the book of, uh, I believe it's John, that six days prior to Passover, Jesus went to Bethany and had supper. 
that would have been the Sabbath. Take that as the Sabbath. Okay? The next day, he goes to Jerusalem, and what happens? Everybody's doing what? Asking questions. No, not yet. Waving palm branches and laying down their cloaks. And they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. They received him as who? Seeing him that, I want to challenge you that though they didn't recognize it, they were actually accepting and choosing their Passover lamb. Because that was the tenth day of Nisan. And so you have the tenth day. Monday then becomes the eleventh day. Tuesday is the twelfth day. Wednesday is the thirteenth day. Thursday becomes the fourteenth day of Nisan. And that on the fourteenth day at twilight, which just happens to be the ninth hour of the day, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness covered the earth, and, and he was groaning. And at the ninth hour, Jesus lifted up his voice, and he said, It is finished. And said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up the ghost. And an earthquake covered everything. The, the veil of the temple was torn in two. They were not able to do what? Slaughter the Passover lambs at the temple that day. Why? Because the Passover lamb was already slaughtered. Now, you say, okay, but what about, why, what about Good Friday? Jesus said while he was on the earth that as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. So, get three days and three nights from Friday, right? But, if you look, and you can look at this later, check me out on this one, in Matthew 28, verse 1, you'll read, it says, after the Sabbath, Mary, went, Mary and the other Mary went to the, to the tomb. In the Greek, it says, Sabbaton, which isn't Sabbath, it is Sabbaths, plural. After the Sabbaths, plural, Mary went to the tomb. Now, from the Greek understanding, from the English understanding, we don't get it. But again, you have to go back to the Jewish foundation to understand these things. Because what are we told here? That the day after Passover, or the first day of unleavened bread, is. It's a, it's a Sabbath day. It's a holy convocation to the Lord. And so that Friday, that Thursday from sunset, to Friday at sunset, was a holy convocation to the Lord. It was a high Sabbath. And then at Friday at sunset, to Saturday at sunset, there was the weekly Sabbath. And so you had one Sabbath on Friday, you had a second Sabbath on Saturday. More than one makes a plural. And so the word of God is true. Now what's fun, okay, is, is you can see the pattern in 10th day, 14th day, 15th day, okay? Let's look at the next feast. Oh, let's, let's do 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 5. I forgot I was going to do this. But in 1 Corinthians 5, we read that Jesus Christ is our Passover. It says, therefore purge out the eleven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. But the next feast we want to look at is the Feast of First Fruits. So if you're still there in Leviticus 23, begin looking at verse 10. It says, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, before Yahweh, to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day, when you wave the sheaf, a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Okay? Now, let's come back to this one in a moment. Okay? Okay. It says there, in verse 11, 
When is this feast supposed to occur? The day after the Sabbath. Okay? Now, this is going to come into greater light when we get into the next feast, and that is Pentecost. So just flow with me on this one. That Sabbath that it occurs after, it's the day, it's the first day after the Sabbath, which falls according to Passover and, and, and the Passover celebration, unleavened bread. So in the feast of unleavened bread, whenever they're right after the first weekly Sabbath that's in, involved in that. So some years, unleavened bread, Passover may be on a Monday, maybe on a Tuesday, maybe on a Wednesday, maybe a Thursday, maybe a Friday, doesn't matter, okay? But the first Sabbath, first weekly Sabbath, that occurs during that eight-day feast, seven day of unleavened bread, one day for Passover, okay? The day after that, which will be a Sunday, the first day of the week, okay? The day after that is to be the celebration of first fruits, okay? Now let's read what, what we read in 1 Corinthians 15 about first fruits, because this is fun. This is exciting for me, because again, it's the fulfillment of prophecy. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become what? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Jesus Christ, okay, keep with my scenario. If you want to believe that Jesus died on a Friday, again, we're talking about Romans 14. That's okay. I'm okay with people who believe. There are some people who believe that Jesus died on a Wednesday. And I'm very okay with that as well. For me, biblically, looking at the feast and the prophetic fulfillment of it, I believe it's Thursday. And what it goes on then is then that first day of the week that comes after it, three days afterwards, is what? The feast of first fruits, which is fulfilled, we're told, by Jesus Christ rising from the dead. And so Jesus fulfilled the Passover. Jesus fulfills the, the feast of unleavened bread. Jesus fulfills the feast of first fruits. Right? So the coming of Christ is the fulfillment of these first three feasts. Well, it doesn't end there. What's the next feast? What's the Feast of Weeks? It's called Sheviot. So here in Leviticus 23, we begin at verse 15. It says, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath. What Sabbath was that? That was the first fruits. The day after that Sabbath was the, it was the, the Feast of First Fruits. Okay? The day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. Excuse me. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. For they are the first fruits to the Lord. So we're told that there is going to be this other feast now. This feast of weeks. And it's going to occur seven weeks after the feast of first fruits. Or 50 days afterwards. Okay. In Acts chapter 2, we read about this feast, this feast called Sheviot, but we refer to this feast as Pentecost. Pentecost means 50. Pente, 5, okay? 5 weeks, or uh, 50 days. <clears throat> and so when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Therefore, let all the house of Israel, and this is Peter's now speaking in, in verse 36 later on. I didn't do the whole message of Peter. 
But he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know, assuredly, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they, that is all the Jews who were gathered together in Jerusalem, heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now what's fun is that the Jews believe that on Pentecost, on Shavuot, it was also the time when Moses was given the law on Mount Sinai. And he, when, when he was given the law on Mount Sinai, it led to, does anybody know? The death of 3,000 people. Because while he was up there, he heard the, 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 yeah, the, the, the people sinning down on, on the ground. And they were getting into all the uh, lustful temptations and they were building themselves the golden calf. And so he came down and when he saw the people, he threw the stone tablets and he broke them. And then he cried out, who is on the Lord's side? And the Levites came to him. And he said, strap on your sword and go through the camp and kill every man, his brother and his neighbor. And that day, 3,000 Israelites died. Isn't it quite interesting that here we have the fulfillment of Shaviyot, the fulfillment of weeks, Pentecost. And we have the giving of what? Grace. And on the day of the giving of grace, there wasn't death, there was actually life. And how many people were saved? 3,000. The number, again, is not coincidental. There's a reason for it. God was showing a sign there. And so, again, this feast is fulfilled prophetically. It's not just a literal feast, which it is, but it also is a prophecy of something that was to come. And that is the opening up of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the first fruits. And now we see the opening up of the harvest field. And how the fields now were going to be start to be ripe. And Jesus said clearly what? The fields are white unto harvest. The problem is that we need what? We need workers. We need laborers. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send laborers into his field. And this is just the beginning of the harvest. People are looking for an end time harvest. Folks, the harvest field has never been closed. It's just that the laborers have been lazy. I mean, we're praying for God to open up the harvest. Jesus said it's there. It's white. All you've got to do is be bold and faithful to do what? Preach the gospel. But if you don't sow the seed, you'll never see a plant grow. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, we've got a garden in the backyard. We toiled, we tilled it up. We even made nice little boxes in it. I'm praying for God to, to, to grow some tomato plants there. You think it's going to happen? Not unless I what? No, put a seed in it. If I don't put a tomato plant or a tomato seed in there, ain't nothing going to happen. Unless there happens to be a residual from, from years ago or whatever. But the fact is that if I want a tomato plant, i got to plant a tomato seed. Does that make sense? But so many of us are looking for converts. And we want to see people so saved. But we're not willing to tell them about the gospel. 
Talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. So we have the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost. And these feasts were all, if you, if you don't recognize this yet, all in the springtime. Nisan is in March-April time frame. Okay? This is another little kicker. This is on a side thing. You can just search this thing out for yourself. But what we refer to as Easter, the word Easter is not a biblical name. It actually is a pagan name. It comes from Esther, Esther Monoth. Ishtar, Ishtar was the queen of heaven from Babylon. It comes into Esther, Esther Monoth. That's why Esther in the Bible is called Esther, because she was actually named after Ishtar. And you have Esther Monoth. Anyways, and so it's a pagan holiday. It's a celebration of the vernal equinox. And uh, it is not when Christ was risen from the dead. If you want to know when the true quote-unquote resurrection day would be, look to see when Passover is on your, on your calendar, and then go to the, the first, first day of the week after that, and that really is when <coughs> resurrection day should be. We celebrate resurrection day on Easter. I'm not a, you know, so tied into all that. But, I, but to be honest and true, you need to know that. That's, that's what it is. Same with Christmas. Anyways, we won't go on Christmas. So, um, but they're pagan holidays. And so, um, They're all in the springtime, though, is where I'm going. March, April time frame. We still have three more feasts to go to. And I know I'm looking at the time. And so we've got to move quickly through this. But if those are in the springtime, now you need to know that these three are all in the fall. There is a gap between the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Trumpets. And in Leviticus 23, verse 23 and 24, we read about this Feast of Trumpets. And we read, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, remember the other one was the first month, In the seventh month, on the first day, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And so, this Feast of Trumpets is going to occur in the seventh month on the first day. The Feast of Atonements, in Leviticus 23, beginning verse 26, we read, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this month, shall be, the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now I'm going to stop reading right there. But what we're told is on the tenth day, so on the first day they have Yom Terah, which is the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Trumpets, and then on the tenth day of Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, the Day of Covering. Okay? And I, I just, I love that this week, I, I've, been, I've been agonizing over certain portions of prophecy and over certain portions of this stuff. Because I, I, I don't have all the answers. And so I was agonizing, actually, over some of these fall feasts this week. And I feel like the Lord just said, slap, Bob, look at it. And I said, oh, you are so right. God's always right, isn't he? And so it isn't kind of funny. He said, oh, God, you're right. It's like, yeah, duh, you're always right. And, um, but anyways, trumpets. Everybody's pointing to trumpets when Jesus is going to come back. Could it be? Yes, it could be. Because as we're going to see, that there are the trumpets, you know, the, the, the sounding of the last trumpet. But I don't know the day or the hour, so I'm not going to tell you that. All I'm going to tell you is that I believe that the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, which we're going to look at in just a moment, are all prophetic to come. There is this gap that happens between Jesus being on the earth the first time and Jesus being on the earth the second time. And there is this gap, and it's all going to start happening with the, this Feast of the Trumpets. Now, as the days were literally fulfilled on the days, the, so the prophetic fulfillment of those first feasts were Fulfilled when? On their literal days. Could it be that they're going to be fulfilled literally on their literal days in the future? Yes. I'm not going to stake my life on it. Okay? But if everything else is consistent, it makes sense to me that it would be. 
And so trumpets is the day of celebration, a day of blowing the trumpets. But this day of atonement really bugged me because so many times I look at the day of atonement as a day of what? What do we call the day of atonement? It's a day of, it's what, what day? It's judgment day, right? It's not. It's not judgment day. It's the day of atonement. Atonement is different than judgment. What's judgment? Condemnation. What's atonement? Reconciliation and payment. It's the day that the payment is ultimately made. Listen, I, we talk about this all the time. I am saved. Right? I know I'm saved. But the reality is the fulfillment of my salvation is not right now. Right? When is it going to be actualized? When Christ returns and the payment is ultimately, and I'm in his presence. That is ultimately the day of what? Atonement. Do you get it? I mean, I'm his positionally right now, but practically speaking, I still struggle. But one day, prophetically and positionally, I will be there. And the payment, the blood, is shed and it's poured. That's what it's all about. And after that, then we have the Feast of Tabernacles, oh, which we didn't read about, but in Leviticus 23, 34 to 43. I must have hit the button somewhere along in there. Beginning at verse 34, it says, Speak to the children of Israel, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be a feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day you shall do, have a holy convocation, you shall do no customary works, and for seven days you shall go on and so forth, and that last day is a holy convocation as well, and I'm going to cut that down because of time here. Okay? But in Ezekiel, we read in chapter 37, it says, Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. Again, God's saying what? Israel's my people, and I'm going to bring them back. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. Kind of bringing all these covenant things together here, isn't it? They shall no longer be two nations, Israel and Judah, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David my servant shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes to do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there. They, their children, and their children's children forever. My servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Do you know what the, 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 the Feast of Tabernacles represented to Israel? Is that God was with them. Throughout the, the wilderness, there was the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. And that God's physical presence was with them as they went through the wilderness. We're told in John chapter 1 that the Word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us. There's a word for tabernacle. He tabernacled among us and we beheld His glory. Jesus Christ is the Shekinah Chavod. He is the Shekinah Chavod. He is the Shekinah glory of God. 
When we talk about the Shekinah glory for Israel in there, Jesus is literally referred to as the Shekinah Chavod. He is the tabernacle and glory of God. And one day he's going to come and he's going to sit on the throne of David. God in the flesh is going to be on the earth reigning for thousands of years. For a thousand years. Not, not, not thousands. But a thousand years. He's going to reign on the earth. And what's going to happen? The nations are going to come together. Zechariah 14. It says the nations are going to come together and they're going to have to participate in the Feast of Tabernacles. Isn't that interesting? Not just a Jewish thing, but in those days, in that, that millennial kingdom, that all the nations who are still here after Jesus sets up his millennium, they will all be required, including Egypt, who is given by specific name there, to come. And if they do not come, that God will withhold rain from them. They will have famine and they will have drought in their land because they will not participate in the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Why? Because the Feast of Tabernacles is the prophetic fulfillment, is the prophetic looking toward how God was going to come and tabernacle among men. And he will be their God and we shall be his people. It's exciting stuff. Now, in all those then, there is a foundation, I hope you understand, coming through Israel. That we need to understand about end times. And if we don't understand all these things, we're not going to understand the, the end. So, I ask you the question, what is your view of scripture? Do you believe that all scripture or just New Testament is inspired by God? That it's God-breathed? What's your view of history? Is it his story or is it just a series of random events that God has put together? Is God sovereign over the affairs of man? Or does man have the trump card over the plan of God? I hope you're saying, no, no, clearly it's all about God and God's in control. But sometimes we don't live that way and sometimes we don't base our theology that way. We think we can change things. Is Christ your Passover lamb? And finally, have you entered into the new covenant with God through Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your word. We know that it is true. We know that it is quick. We know that it is powerful. We know that it is sharper than two-edged sword. And Lord, there is so much in your word. God, I just pray that you will help me to, to be more concise. And as I present your, your truth to these people, God, I pray that, though, that it's your word. And that it's your word that causes us to grow. And causes us to, to be strong and strengthened for these days that we live in. Lord, I pray that we would be those who are firm believers in your truth and in your word. And we are looking to you for the deliverance. That we are looking uh, to you for your return. Lord, I pray that we would not be caught unawares. But we would be those who are of the day. Who are of the light. And that we are sober and we are watching. And that we are telling, and that we are sharing, and that we are ministering in the harvest and telling others about the joy of the salvation which you have given to us. Lord, we thank you for the foundation of Jesus Christ and for the foundation of the apostles and the prophets which you have given to us to learn from. Be exalted, Father, in our studies. Be exalted in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.